Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. This uh, is going to be a somewhat different episode of Serious Trouble from our usual episodes. Uh, Rather than talking about this week's news, we're going to look at some longer-run themes in the ways that we talk about legal news and some errors that we consistently see in media coverage and some uh, thoughts that we have on how people can be better consumers of media coverage about legal news and better actually understand what is happening in legal proceedings based on what they see about it in the news. Because, Ken, my understanding is there are certain things that bother you about the way this works. Yeah, I have a lot of grievances, actually. Yeah. Although I do have a concern here, Josh. What if we overtrain people and then they don't need us anymore? Well, you know, the AI is going to come for us anyway. So like CNN, it's a structurally declining business. You know, it's just a matter of, uh, of management. Fair enough. Um, but let's talk first about a relatively straightforward issue, which is you get news articles. They say, you know, this court made this decision. Here's what the decision was. And then they don't actually provide you a copy of the decision, which is a problem because then sometimes the article isn't fully correct about what the significance of the decision is or it misses what the core point is and what the court did. Uh, so what should people do if the news article doesn't have a copy of the court decision? I would say you generally want to look for an article that does have a link to the decision. If a significant media uh, source does not have a link to it, particularly if it's something big like a Supreme Court decision or something like that, then that, as I would say to my kids if I was trying to annoy them, is very sus. The thing is, uh, a lot of this stuff in court decisions, we can, even if we're not lawyers, we can at least partially follow. Uh, Everyone who's interested in listening to this show is more than smart enough and informed enough to follow the basics of complaint or a decision by a court or a motion and kind of get a sense of what's going on. And when uh, journalists don't attach copies of that primary source or link to them, it encourages people to be lazy and just rely entirely on the gloss on this decision. And I find on the average that journalists who link to the original content are more likely to get it right and more likely to be careful. Uh, And journalists who don't encourage us kind of to be lazy. So one of the first things you can do, therefore, to be uh, a educated consumer of legal news and a skeptical consumer of it is to prefer the journalists who do those links. Part of it is uh, it can be quite challenging for somebody who is not an attorney or not reasonably well-trained in this to go dig it up themselves. Right. I mean, the Supreme Court is easy. Those just go on the website of the Supreme Court. You can also go to SCOTUS blog on the day that decisions are coming out, and they will have the links right away to those decisions once they're available. But in other courts, it can be more difficult to track down uh, those documents. Sure. Uh, although with with Supreme Court decisions, sometimes from the title of an article about it or the description, it's not immediately obvious what the name of the case is. So right. it might be a little harder to find it. But yeah, sometimes if you're talking about a decision from a state court or a motion filed in court, it's not super easy for someone who's not an attorney to get it. So it is super easy for journalists who are trained in this to get it. So prefer the ones who do. And on average, you're going to get more reliable legal coverage. And so if you're trying to find these yourself for federal courts, anyone can go on PACER and get these documents at some fairly nominal fee if, if you know, if you're really motivated to find some decision that's not linked in, in a news story? Yes, you could go to PACER, which is the cutting edge of 1990 technology, uh, <laughs> to uh, download for what amounts to about 30 cents a page, cutting off at 30 pages. That could be a little tricky to navigate if you're not used to it. There are a number of sources that are very admirably trying to make federal court filings uh, free to the public and open, and those are having some success. There are a number of those out there. But again, the easiest thing to do would be if the journalists who are trained in this, uh, when they report on something, post the links to it. And to be fair, the best ones do. And then what about state courts? Like, do you need Westlaw or, or LexisNexis if you're trying to find state court decisions? It's a patchwork, uh, Josh. There's no uniform system across the United States or even within particular states for how state courts make their content available online. Some of them have 
um, electronic filing systems. Uh, so you file your legal documents online and they're available online. Some you literally have to go to the clerk's office if you want a copy of something or get it from one of the lawyers. So huh. it's a patchwork. But again, journalists tend to have superior sources for this sort of thing. And so the ones right. who do the legwork and get it are the ones to trust. What about uh, – there are some headline tropes that you have been complaining about, uh, ways in which court cases get covered that end up really uh, misrepresenting what certain actions at certain stages of litigation actually mean. Um, and so a, lo a lot of this is, is more about civil litigation than criminal, about who's, who's liable for what. So here's the thing. Clickbait sells – on any topic, right? And and you observe that many times about politics when something is treated as outrageous uh, or bizarre when it's really very mundane. It's often the case in, in law as well. And particularly the, the less reputable sites will take the most clickbaity, outraged reaction possible to some mundane legal development, uh, maybe because they don't understand it, uh, maybe because they're trying to get attention, maybe both. Uh, and then you consume that. And often you consume it second or third hand because just the headline gets posted on Facebook or something. And before you know it, all your friends are saying, have you seen this outrageous thing? So let me give you an example that's recent. Uh, back in May, I believe, the Arizona Supreme Court released a decision on a fairly typical application of what's called the priest penitent privilege. That's the idea that a priest who hears a confession can't be compelled uh, to release information about what that person said under the seal of the confessional. It's a very ancient legal concept. Every state in the union has some sort of privilege preventing uh, anyone from compelling that to be released. Mm -hmm. And it, it's very old school. But in this case, it was the Mormon church and child abuse that was involved. Uh, the Arizona Supreme Court simply said, yeah, in this case, you can't compel this church to disclose things that were said in a confession. But the way all the headlines decided to get your attention was saying things like outrageous. You know, Arizona Supreme Court says Mormon church has a privilege to hide child abuse, uh, stuff like mm -hmm. that. So whenever you see a headline about law where it seems that a court has done something truly outrageous or a party has said something truly outrageous, consume it with some skepticism because particularly in the the internet environment where people need clicks and, and eyeballs, there's this huge incentive to do that sort of thing. What about when Lori Laughlin chose her own prison in the Varsity Blues scandal? You're trying to make me mad now. You're deliberately trying to work me up. Yeah. So I would never do that, Ken. <laughs> this was a big thing. So remember, Lori Laughlin is a actress who was on Full House, who was caught up in this uh, scandal of bribing schools uh, because she allegedly uh, – helped give bribes to get her daughters into USC. Uh, and when she was sent... Actually, the problem was that they didn't bribe the schools. It's that they bribed an employee of the schools who was not authorized to give out positions at schools. The funny thing about Varsity Blues is that the way that it offended people morally was about the unfairness of who, who got into college. But really, the, the, the crux of the crime was theft, essentially, that they were stealing the ability to hand out seats at USC from USC, which would have liked to uh, charge a lot more money. They wanted to you actually have to build a library rather than just, you know, give, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to some coach. Well, exactly. But anyway. Exactly. Yeah. If you if you if she had done it the right way is to, you know, name a building or after herself or something with a nice big donation, that would have been absolutely right. fine. Uh, or if she had spent tens of thousands of dollars on coaching her daughters to be, uh, you know, athletically excellent, that would have worked, too. Yeah. At any rate, uh, when she was sentenced, all the headlines were outraged things about her. She, she was because she's privileged. She's allowed to choose her own jail, and it's a cushy one. And this is all about uh, the privilege of the rich, the privilege of the white, and how they get to you know evade the criminal justice system. But that was all bullshit because uh, she was a person with no criminal record. She was going, if she was put in jail as she was, to a low-security facility uh, for women. And there are only two in California that fit the bill. So once she asked to be sent to a place near to her family, which is a request made in nearly every single federal criminal case, then it was inevitable where she was going. So the system chose where she went. She didn't chose where she went. But people don't care about that because it's much more clickbaity and exciting to say, you know, rich person uh, defeats the system and chooses her own jailer. 
What about uh, the coverage of the Fox v. Dominion lawsuit? Uh, one, one of the things in the in some litigation involving Fox was that basically they had argued successfully, if I recall correctly, uh, that they couldn't be liable for defamation in some specific case because things that uh, that pundits said on Fox News were not meant to be taken literally. Right. So now you see every time uh, you go anywhere on social media and mention Fox, someone will say, well, Fox has admitted they're an entertainment channel, not a news channel. And so they shouldn't be allowed to treat themselves as a news channel. Aside from the fact that that's not a thing, that news channels aren't treated separately as news or entertainment, and that's not a meaningful distinction, it's completely wrong about what they did. So in a particular case where Tucker Carlson was sued for defamation for being Tucker Carlson, in the case, Tucker's lawyer said in this particular broadcast, in this particular episode, this part was clearly commentary and entertainment. And you you look at that, as you recall, in deciding whether something is a statement of fact that can be defamatory or whether it's just a statement of opinion, rhetoric, hyperbole, commentary, that sort of thing. So uh, nobody at Fox said our entire channel is entertainment. No one who's ever watched Fox could credibly say that, uh, but uh, (laughs) they just said they applied the standard defamation analysis. Is this particular statement in its specific context uh, a provable statement of fact or not? And people have just run with that and said, well, now the entire channel is not news, so we can shut it down, which is, you know, (laughs) clickbait bullshit in every sense of the way. There's a lot of that about civil cases, Josh, because there's a Mm. lot of dumb, boring procedural stuff that happens in civil cases that if you're bored and you're hungry for clicks, you can turn into something sinister. So one of my pet peeves is uh, answers, all right? Uh, When you file a lawsuit against somebody, they may try to move to dismiss it. Sooner or later, they're going to have to file an answer. And the answer admits or denies what's said against them, and it includes something called affirmative defenses, a series of things that they're going to use for defenses. And those are kind of boilerplate. So it's very typical just to throw 30 of them into an answer, like the statute of limitations, even if there's no statute of limitations problem, Uh, unclean hands, waiver, all these traditional old school defenses. It's very common for them to be pled, even if they're not particularly applicable, because you never know whether something might be revealed in discovery that you want to take into account. One very, very common one that arguably it could be a malpractice not to include is to say that there was contributory negligence from the plaintiff when there's some sort of negligent event. But the way this often gets spun is, you know, this beautiful little child got run over by a county truck and they're blaming the child. Look at these heartless, evil lawyers for the city. Uh, Often it's presented as they're suing the parents, which they're not. They're just (laughs) answering the complaint, including a boilerplate defense that any lawyer would do that it might be a malpractice not to do. But the person who's writing the headline is either ignorant or doesn't care about accuracy. And so they spin it as here we are, we have this horrible situation where the villainous lawyers are blaming the child for its own death. And so what are the broad lessons here for consumers of legal news? I mean, do people need to read the underlying decisions every time there's one of these articles? That would be very time consuming. I mean, that's not the way that we approach most other news that we consume. We try to find, you know, ways that we can trust news organizations to describe and summarize things for us that we either don't have time to read or don't have the relevant expertise to read. Um, So, I mean, you've gone through some specific examples here, but what does this mean as as a general practice if someone is looking at a news article that says something that might make them feel outraged or might make them feel surprised? What should they what should they do with the article? They should read the article. Uh, First of all, so headlines about law are often terrible. And I feel like this is a prime case of uh, Gelman amnesia, you know, the idea that you uh, look at an article that's in your field and you see that the journalist has it all wrong, and then you happily go (laughs) along to the next article about some other topic and you're outraged by it, uh, forgetting (laughs) that it was wrong the last time. So I think everyone knows that headlines in their sphere of knowledge are often terrible. Uh, They're also terrible for law. So don't pay attention to the headline so much. Read the article. Find the lead the way you do in every story. See if they buried it someplace. See what the point of it is. And then, no, I'm not saying every single time you should read 
the uh, decision or complaint or whatever it is. Although, before you go on a wild ass tear about how angry you are, maybe that would be a time to do it. You know, if you're right. going to start making big life decisions and abandon your family to go protest it, I would you know recommend actually reading it. Um, <laughs> but you should be making decisions about well, maybe I'll reserve judgment about this and read. You know, a, a journalist that I have come to trust who tends to attach the actual ruling uh, when you're consuming these things. And then we've talked some about the, the bad actions of, of journalists here, but I find that a lot of the misleading about law that is done in the media is done by lawyers. And in particular, the sorts of lawyers who like to go on television a lot and talk. On cable news, you see lots of ex-AUSAs. Can, uh, uh, can we trust ex-AUSAs? Uh, I, with skepticism, uh, a great deal of skepticism. Okay. What about you? You're an ex-AUSA. Oh, you can totally trust me. Okay. You can totally trust Well, actually, you should decide whether or not to trust me by listening to me over the long term and seeing whether I seem to be right and whether I admit when I'm wrong. I mean, these are the ways mm -hmm. we learn to trust other people. Here's the thing about ex AUSAs. They market themselves heavily as ex-AUSAs because of this cultural thing where it's extremely prestigious and people trust you because you used to be a prosecutor, which is not something you do if you ever were a prosecutor or a defense lawyer, but is very effective with the public and making them think that you're trustworthy. <laughs> uh, so there's a tendency to just say, oh, this person's an ex-AUSA, so they'll be credible, so let's throw them on the screen. You shouldn't trust them because they used to be an AUSA, particularly if they're talking about something outside of federal criminal law. So one thing you should look for uh, when you're deciding who to trust who are lawyers on TV, does this lawyer talk about everything? Everything mm -hmm. from slip and fall cases to Trump getting indicted to every single little thing. Are they always on the news talking about whatever it is? Because no lawyer actually has that broad experience in a way that's actually helpful as a commentator. So I, I try to be relatively narrow about stuff, and I try not to go outside my wheelhouse. Uh, that's a good thing to do. That means turning down TV and radio appearances because they'll call you, and you just got to say, look, this isn't my area. Go find somebody else. So look right. for people who do that. Don't trust people who are constantly every day on the news about every single legal issue. See how uh, they react to anyone pushing back. See whether they ever admit they're wrong. See if they are awfully certain all the time. You know, uh, mm -hmm. you say there's no other way this could go. That's rarely the case in law. So a lot of the things that you'd use to evaluate anyone's credibility work perfectly well with lawyers on TV. I mean, there, there's a couple other things I would note about ex-AUSAs, especially in, in, in the Trump and, and post-Trump era on television. One is that there's a real selection bias in television for who's going to tell the audience what the audience wants to hear or what is most interesting for the audience to hear. There's been a lot of demand for people to say, you know, they're just about to get Donald Trump. And I realize this year he has, in fact, been getting indicted. Yes. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of AUSAs who predicted, you know, 14 of the last two indictments. And then you also have a, a a bias that I think ends up pairing with that, where when you have people who are ex-prosecutors, they tend to have the prosecution's viewpoint, and they tend to have, you know, a strong sense that, you know, yeah, the, the, this, we're going to be able to get this guy, and this is a really strong case, and that sort of thing, especially because lawyers are, you know, part of being a good trial lawyer is being good at making a weak argument strongly. Yes. They can sort of pick either side of an argument and make the best case available for it. And there's a reason that we do that in an adversarial system in court. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily make for the most informative television. But the, when you combine those factors, you've basically gotten a lot of people who spend a lot of time on cable news with unreasonably rosy views of the strength of, of prosecution options, specifically with relationship to Donald Trump. I mean, I, I was on CNN a few weeks ago uh, with a guy when the Alvin Bragg indictment was just about to come down in Manhattan before we knew what the exact content of the indictment was. And this guy who was an ex-federal prosecutor, he was saying, well, they're definitely going to be able to get Trump here because he took the Fifth Amendment so many times in a deposition in a civil case related to these matters. So that's, you know, the, those are all, all sorts of crimes uh, that he was not able to admit to there, and they're going to be able to get him on something. And it's like, that is, that is not how any of of this works. No. But that is a, a message that a lot of people who watch a lot of cable news might enjoy hearing. Absolutely. And, and Josh, you've been on TV plenty. And wouldn't you agree that there's a huge incentive and a huge pressure 
to say exciting things and yes. punchy things and clickbaity things. And nuance is not really what they're looking for. And it's hard to fit it in to that however many seconds you're going to get talking about something. And there's also a huge incentive to say conclusive things. Yes. I mean, often, you know, something has happened and we don't know very much about it yet. And they want you to, you know, to have a strong opinion about it and, you know, who was right and who was wrong. And isn't it terrible that they did this and this sort of thing. And sort of, you know, the and I, you know, I try to be good about this. And I'm, I'm better at, about it than almost anyone else who, who I go on TV with, I find. But just making sure that, you know, if, if the answer is I don't know, or the answer is I don't have an opinion yet, finding a way to say that and then maybe say something else that I actually can, you know, be on strong ground about rather than uh, doing what people are very easily tempted into doing, which is venturing a strong view about something they have no business having a strong view about. Sure. And I think what's good, watch for lawyers who will tell you, well, here's what to watch for. As mm -hmm. this goes forward, here are the factors that will be taken into account. Here's how you can kind of tell what's going on and draw conclusions from that, as opposed to being absolute, you know, here's my soundbite that I want to get on all the clips. You also have to pay attention to, to what you're watching. I mean, what, what um, platform are you watching? So there are plenty of ex-AUSAs on Fox and places even to the right of that who were saying all sorts of nonsense about uh, the impeachments and about the investigation. It was in the other direction, saying absolute right. nonsense about how they don't have a case or this is unconstitutional or whatever it is. So uh, you, you have to look for people who seem to be willing to say things that is against the grain of the channel and even against the grain of who they seem to uh, support. So if you have a commentator and they never seem to predict anything or say anything that isn't what they want as an outcome, uh, then generally you don't want to trust them. What about defense attorneys on television? I feel, I feel like you see more people with prosecutorial backgrounds than, than criminal defense backgrounds. Uh, I mean, it's funny. I mean, one, one defense attorney that we've been seeing a lot on television lately is Tim Parlatore, uh, who has been eagerly doing color commentary on the case of, of his ex-client, Donald Trump, um, which is you know, definitely not something that he should be doing as an attorney. And I know he has been, you know, it's, it's not just a bias from being a defense attorney, it's specifically having been Trump's defense attorney, but he's been taking the view that these uh, attorney-client privilege issues that are going to be really central in Eileen Cannon's handling of that federal case down in Florida, his view is basically, you know, the government had no business looking at these communications, and there are the vast majority of them, and that they should not be admitted as evidence in the trial. Do you have to, when you're, when you're watching a defense attorney talk, are there sort of similar things to when a prosecutor talks that the defense attorney is likely to be excessively sympathetic to certain arguments the defense is going to make in the case? Sure. And you evaluate it the same way. You see whether or not they ever say anything doesn't seem to be pure defense, true believer. You, you d decide whether or not they seem to treat issues in an even-handed way. I will say that do not, under any circumstances, trust someone who's willing to sell out their former client on national TV <laughs> uh, to get on there, because that's just appalling. And I think you can reliably decide that if uh, they're willing to do that, they're willing to do just about everything. So that's why I wouldn't trust anything Parlatore has to say or, or any attorney who's willing to go on TV and say, yeah, my uh, former client uh, sure is a, a terrible and uh, maybe they're not guilty of everything, but it sure looks like they're guilty of some things. That's, that's not something <laughs> an attorney should be doing. You have to be careful of the media's tendency to try to portray very routine, mundane things as exciting. Uh, because they, they have to do that, right? They got to make a story. So when Trump made his first appearance in federal court, every headline was blaring, Trump pleads not guilty. I was like, oh, of course he pled not guilty. That's what you do at your first appearance. Nobody pleads guilty at their uh, first appearance unless they've prearranged a, a plea agreement or something like that. You, you've got to watch for things and, and see, is the headline really the story? Is there any story at all or did just something very mundane that happens in every case happen here? Every case generally, in a civil case, one side moves to dismiss or denies uh, the allegations and the claims. In uh, every criminal case, generally at the first appearance, they plead not guilty. This is what you do. Mm -hmm. And so if, if someone is trying to whip it up into a big, uh, you know, huge headline thing, then they probably don't have a lot of substance there. And then what about when judges get mad? Um, how can we figure out whether a judge's interesting behavior, because I mean, you know, mo those of us who don't spend time in a courtroom, that would be, you know, quite an experience having a having a federal judge 
yell at you or scold you, that sort of thing. How do we figure out when a judge's behavior is unusual, is actually a problem, is actually indicative of a strong bias against one of the parties versus being just, you know, how federal judges behave in court? Sure. Uh, this is what we've talked about a lot over the years, Josh. And you might remember during during the Robert Mueller investigations and prosecutions, there were several times during trials of some of these figures where the media would be, oh, you know, the prosecution has lost this case. The judge is so mad at them. Uh, he's yelling at them. And then, you know, there's a conviction and a sentence and it's a big nothing burger. The truth is, Judges get upset. Judges yell. You'd probably yell too if you dealt with uh, lawyers all day. And I, I think you need to, again, consume skeptically. Uh, are, is the person who tell, is telling you that this is a big deal, are they a trial lawyer? Are they a courtroom lawyer? They, have they appeared in front of the judge? Have they appeared in court at all to know what they're talking about? And do they seem otherwise reliable or do they seem clickbaity? Uh, and once again, you'll get the same um, feeling. So, you know, if, if it's with all respect to journalist, a journalist who's just saying that, uh, you know, judges' comments seem to indicate the case is in trouble, uh, then I think you'd want to know what is the journalist's experience that leads them to have a basis to say that. And then when you have a civil case, you know, you, before there's a trial – I mean, usually there won't be a trial, but the stages leading up to a trial, uh, there's a motion to dismiss where basically the, the defendant will say there's, you know, there's no legal case here. Even if everything that was in the complaint was true, they still wouldn't have a claim to sue over. So you file that motion to dismiss. If the case is not dismissed then, then you may have a motion for summary judgment, basically saying, you know, we've gone through discovery. Um, there's no relevant dispute of fact after the discovery, and, uh, and therefore we should win without going to trial. And if that motion is denied, then you can, then you can have a trial. You can have a settlement any, at, at any point along in that process. And so, so you know, the, the notes that, that you have here as, as we're getting this episode ready are, you know, denying a motion to dismiss doesn't mean the plaintiff is going to win. Um, and so sometimes that's something that can be covered as a big victory for the plaintiff when it really isn't. But then there, we've also talked about some litigation, particularly defamation litigation, where often it's pretty remarkable to survive the motion to dismiss phase of the case, that that can be indicative of really significant strength uh, of a claim. So what should we what should we make of, you know, as, as a litigation that we're interested in goes through these steps, how should we interpret what it means if, you know, if a motion to dismiss the case is denied? So this is an area where good journalism makes a big difference. And a lot of journalists do a fairly good job with this. Where you see this consumed the worst tends to be when it gets repeated on social media and used by political partisans, where someone will say, you know, so-and-so, uh, the motion to dismiss was denied. That means they're going to win. That's a very typical political partisan riff on a situation. So a motion to dismiss, like you said, um, whether in state and federal court is just saying, look, if everything in here is true, uh, under the law, you still can't win. So you should dismiss the case. And if the judge denies that, all it means is that someone on one side – has alleged enough with enough specific alleged facts that if you treat them as true, they might win in front of a jury. So that's not really much at all. It's, it's like it's legally sufficient. Like you say, um, in defamation cases, it's often significant because it, that'll get down to the nitty gritty about whether or not this is a statement of fact or opinion. Uh, is it something that can be defamatory or not? So a lot of defamation cases get knocked out there. Uh, but most of the time, Denying a motion uh, to dismiss just means that they've done a, you know, lightly crafty job drafting the complaint. Uh, mm -hmm. Motions for summary judgment are another stage we hear about a lot. And that's, in a way, it's similar because it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to win a trial. It just means that one side um, has some evidence, which if you believe it, then they might convince a jury. So that, again, is a very low standard, but it tends to be portrayed uh, as a huge victory or a huge thing. So there are areas where it's traditional to try to knock things out at summary judgment. And some of the ones we talk about the most, like defamation, are those areas because there are a lot of defenses that are legal and tend to fit in well with those motions. But most of the time, if you know, the, the example I use to explain it to clients is like for summary judgment, if you got uh, – if you're in a car crash – 
and you get a uh, hundred people to give you declarations saying the other car ran the red light, and you've got the Pope and Jesus and and the President and all this <laughs> stuff giving you declarations, and one guy on the other side who's a convicted axe murderer with a declaration saying they didn't run the right red light, the axe murderer wins. So it's not really a statement <laughs> about the quality of the evidence. It's just is there any evidence which, if believed, right. would would carry the ball? So be careful in looking at claims that the outcome of a motion to dismiss means anything other than the case is dismissed or it's going to move forward and that a summary judgment means anything other than the case is gone or it's going to go to trial. It doesn't mean much more than that. Let's talk about sentencing. And this is the big one. This is the big one. So... You'll see headlines where, you know, someone gets charged with, let's say, 37 counts of, of federal crimes, to pick a random number. Um, and then some reporter will go and they'll add up the maximum sentence for each of those 31 crimes and say, this person faces hundreds of years in jail, or a maximum of hundreds of years in jail. Why is that the wrong way to talk about how someone might be sentenced in federal court? So thank you for specifying federal court, because the first thing to recognize is that sentencing works quite differently across the country in federal and state courts, and it works very differently between the different states. There are a lot of different schemes and approaches, but in almost every single one, federal or state, there's a big difference between the theoretical statutory maximum that could be applied and what's likely to happen. Um, so the, the statutory maximums are, are designed to be fairly high, but it's rare for them to actually be what the person actually gets sentenced to, even in states like California that have what's called determinative sentencing, where it's kind of set, you're going to get a low, medium, or high sentence in that range. Uh, so this is particularly a problem when you have cases with multiple counts. So like, you know, when Trump gets charged with whatever it was uh, in the Manhattan case, 35 counts of, you know, a misdemeanor, nobody thinks who practices law that you just add up all those maxima and therefore he's going to get, you know, 18 years or whatever it is. That's not the way it works. Similarly, with federal statutes, the way you get the sentence is not to add up all the maximum sentences, which in a case like this does get you hundreds of years. That's not the way it works. That's not what happens. In federal court, the sentence is determined by something called the United States Sentencing Guidelines. That is a complex formula that generates a recommended sentencing range. And then the judge makes a decision that's often, but not always, close to that. And so the sentencing guidelines, they used to be mandatory but now they are merely a recommendation to judges? That's right. So back in the 70s and early 80s, a lot of commentators were pointing out that in federal court, you could get dramatically different sentences for the same kind of conduct, uh, depending on which judge you wound up in front of. The feeling was a lot of this time, this was about race, and class, and things like that, not about legitimate factors. So Congress uh, passed the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984. They created the Sentencing Commission. They said, go come up with a formula. You know, I, I always imagine they say, you know, we really like Dungeons and Dragons. Make it kind of like that, like plus two to this and, and 12 of that and like, you know, <laughs> special attacks and stuff like make it like that. Make it geeky. And, and boy, did they. So the Sentencing Commission comes up with this incredibly complex set of rules that turns complex life situations into numbers. And it was mandatory for a long time. And for 20 years or so, um, federal criminal law was dominated in the courts of appeals by squabbles over how exactly you apply these rules and which one applies and how do you interpret this one and so forth. 2005, uh, the Supreme Court had been running a series of cases that say basically the Sixth Amendment says you have a right to a jury trial. So if there is a factor that automatically triggers something mandatory at sentencing, then you have a right for the jury to find that triggering factor. So mm -hmm. there were like career criminal statutes or statutes with mandatory minimum sentences. And the Supreme Court said, well, if it's mandatory, if it's automatic, not discretionary, then the jury has to find that factor or you're losing your right to a jury trial. And what mm -hmm. the court said in a case called Booker in 2005 as well, these sentencing so-called guidelines are mandatory. That's the way they're done. So therefore, they're unconstitutional unless you make them merely recommendations. So that was the sea change. After that, the sentencing guidelines became mere recommendations. Sentences are now not 
reviewed for whether the sentence met the guideline recommendation, but whether it's reasonable. Now, if it's within the guidelines, it's often presumed reasonable, but it's not presumed unreasonable if it's not. And the, the uh, review for the judge's uh, sentence is a very loose abuse of discretion standard. And so now that those are just recommendations, how much, how much do the guidelines actually tell us about what sentences will be handed out? Do judges, do they use that discretion a lot to hand out sentences that are substantially or above or below the guidelines? Or do the guidelines still provide us quite good guidance about what sentences people are actually going to get? Uh, on average, they still do. Um, there are some areas, first of all, they more often go below than above. Uh, the guidelines tend to be fairly harsh, uh, particularly with, um, you know, when, you, when you're accumulating a whole bunch of white collar crime things, it tends to drive big sentences. Violent crimes tend to be very big, drug crimes. So um, you start out with that proposition that judges are more likely to go under them than over them. Then, uh, I mean, it, it kind of, it's, it's the classic story. Probably people who are don't have a criminal record who are white collar criminals facing their first offense are more likely to see something significantly below the guideline than someone who robbed a bank. Uh, and that's the way the system's always worked, and I don't anticipate that changing. We saw that again during the Robert Mueller cases. You remember people, uh, the guideline uh, sentence would be up in the tens of years, and it would get cut way down uh, for, for all sorts of these first-time white-collar criminals. But it is still – it gives you a concept of where it's going to start and where the defense attorneys are going to have to start arguing from. Okay. Suppose you have a news article that's talking about sentencing and it just has, you know, the maximum sentence is X and that's a meaningless number. It's not going to be the maximum sentence. I assume the reason that we don't often see high quality estimates in news articles is that because the guidelines are so complicated, the reporters lack the necessary expertise to figure out what the actual likely sentence is. I mean, I guess the first thing is, couldn't they call up someone like you to offer a quote for the article opining about what a likely sentence is? Yes, although I tend to be hesitant because it's easy to get it wrong if you're not immersed in the details of the case. It's hard to get it right if you don't have all the information uh, that you need uh, that's going to go into the hopper at the end to come up with these numbers. Usually the prosecutors and the defense are only the only ones who have that right now. Uh, so you'll find people – very hesitant to do it. But the truth is that uh, anyone could learn how to do it. If you could learn how to fill out a tax return for a modestly successful uh, couple or a small business or something like that, you could learn how to do a sentencing guideline calculation. And so we will include uh, on, in the email for this episode and on the on the page on SeriousTrouble.show uh, about this episode, we're going to have a link to the table the table that governs the sentencing guidelines. And it's this big table with rows and columns. And so in the, the rows, you have the offense level, the seriousness of the offense that the defendant is being convicted of, which can range from seriousness level one to 43. And then in the columns, you have a criminal history. Uh, so what, you know, prior acts by the person who's, who's been convicted. And that ranges from uh, Roman numeral one to Roman numeral six. Um, about the seriousness of the person's criminal history. And then you read the row and the column, and you get a number of months that are the guideline range. So if you have a seriousness level 26 crime committed by an offender in category uh, Roman numeral three, then the guideline is that person should be sentenced to between 78 and 97 months in prison. So that's six and a half years uh, to uh, to just over eight years. Yes, Josh, and, um, and, and this is just as exciting as uh, explaining a chart over the radio. Uh, I thought would be, uh, but <laughs> people can look at the chart, the links uh, on the episode. But that chart, that table, is the heart of the United States Sentencing Guidelines. It it has the two numbers that you derive, and then you put together to find that range. That's a recommended sentencing range. Okay, so reading that chart's not very hard. How do people figure out what the offense level is and what the criminal history category is? Well, let's do criminal history first because it's easier. So that's the uh, columns, uh, the, the numbers on the uh, horizontal axis uh, from zero when you have no criminal history, one point where you might have had some petty minor thing a while ago, and so you're still treated like someone with no criminal history, all the way up to six, which you have to be, you know, you have to be really trying to get up to six. You have to be a, a career criminal. And the numbers there, how many points you get are determined by what convictions you have, how long ago they were, 
how much time you spent in prison, how serious they were, and whether or not you committed the current crime while on probation or parole. And that considers only crimes that you've been convicted of. I know sometimes in sentencing, the, the government can look at, at actions that weren't actually convicted or charged. Is this, is this only about convictions? This is only about convictions. That's all that generates points. However, it's common to argue that this person's uh, criminal history number understates how bad they are because they have these 20 arrests. That's a very government type of thing to argue. Or uh, it overstates it. If you're the defense, you're going to want, want to say, ah, it's, it's misleading. It, this last one wasn't that bad. He's not really as bad as someone in a Category 3. So there's that play. But that's the relatively easy part, Josh, the the top axis, the, the criminal history. And then what about the offense level? How do we figure out how serious a crime is? That is super complicated. So like you said, it's numbers from 1 to 43. And if you get up to 43, that's life. Uh, so what you would do first is you would say, OK, what's the crime they've been convicted of? So let's say we were dealing with Donald Trump. And let's say he was convicted at trial in this federal case. We'd say, OK, well, the, the top count, the most serious one is the Espionage Act. And we would look in the index of the sentencing guidelines and look up that statute. And it would say, oh, well, for you know this subsection of the Espionage Act, you can look at these two guidelines here. Uh, they are 2M3.2 and 2M3.3. And you look at those and you see which one seems to fit better. Now, we could go through that, but fortunately, uh, we can cheat and just say that several courts have said that for cases that involve willfully retaining information as opposed to selling it or distributing it or things like that, that it's the guideline 2M3.3 that applies. So you would turn to that guideline and you all can follow along at home with the links uh, on the page on this. And what that guideline says is that uh, if these are top secret documents, you start with a level 29. And if not, you start with a level 24. So here with Trump, there are at least some top secret documents. So he probably starts with a level 29. Now, this guideline for the Espionage Act is a little plain vanilla. There's not a little detail. Lots of crimes, you're going to have a bunch of things called specific offense characteristics. So like, for instance, in a bank robbery, there are going to be adjustments if you had a gun, adjustments if you threatened anyone, adjustments based on how much money you took, things like that. Uh, with fraud, there's going to be how much money was involved, uh, were there vulnerable victims, all this type of thing. So in this case, we wind up with 29, okay? Okay, but that's that's not the end of it, right? Oh, it is not. Oh, God, you, you, you get a drink and have a comfortable seat. This is going to take a while. So <laughs> the next is a category of things called adjustments. These are enhancements or reductions for things going on with the crime that tell the story of the crime. So maybe it's a hate crime. There's an enhancement for that. Maybe the person is a kingpin and he's organized this crime and directed a bunch of, of people. There's an enhancement for that. Or maybe he's just some poor little schlub who's just a, a drug mule and you know is getting paid 100 bucks. There's a downward adjustment for that. So all these things, uh, obstructing justice, if you lie on the stand during your trial, there's an enhancement for that. So there are all these factors you apply and you add or subtract from that offense level that we had so far. So here, for instance, we, with Trump, we started with 29. I would guess he gets a two-point enhancement for obstruction of justice based on the surrounding conduct here. It doesn't have to be lying on the stand. It can be trying to obstruct the investigation. I'd say he gets at least another two points for directing other people like his hapless valet. Uh, to do things uh, connected to the... Oh, crime. Walt. Uh, yes. Call it at least four more points. We're up to a level 33. Uh-huh. But <laughs> we're not done yet. But wait, there's more. <laughs> so uh, as is often the case, Trump is being charged with a bunch of different crimes. And so what if he's convicted of a bunch of different crimes? Well, you go through that whole thing we just did for every separate crime that he's convicted of. And then you kind of mash all it together. Now, what I mean by that is you first you decide whether or not these counts group. That means that, for instance, let's say you, you are uh, – let's say you're charged with a mail fraud scheme and there are 20 counts of mail fraud because the prosecutor's a dick. And, uh, <laughs> but it's all the same scheme and it's one pot of money. Those counts are going to group together. It's going to be treated as one number, right? But let's say you have something where you have uh, 
Espionage Act and Obstruction of Justice and other stuff that's different, then those are probably going to create separate numbers. Uh, violent crimes usually don't group together. And then what you do is you say, okay, well, I've got a level 33 and say a level 25 and a level 10. And you look at a chart and it tells you what you wind up with. It tells you to add a few points possibly to the top number. Uh, so in this case, likely the Espionage Act number is so high at 33 that the other counts probably don't wind up making a difference. So let's say uh -huh. he winds up at a level 33. There's 31 Espionage Act counts here. Is it really such that like so long as you've retained one top secret document and, you know, a single charge of that would, would get Trump to 33, there's no incremental penalty in practice from additional documents? He could have, you know, he could have had any number of these and the, the recommended sentence would have still been the same. So there's no incremental lever in the guideline. However, that would be absolutely be something that a judge would take into account, both in deciding whether or not to go the low end or the high end of the recommendation, whether to go above or below. But it's not like uh, it's not made into a number the way it, the way it is for fraud. So, for instance, for fraud and monetary crimes, the amount of money involved is going to drive the number. So this is the point. We have the number 33. If he had pled guilty, we would apply points for acceptance responsibility, either two or three, depending on how high the number is. But he's not going to. So we would wind up with a level 33 in, in category one, the first column to the left on our table. And that yields a guideline range of 135 to 168 months. That is a long time. It's a very long time. The Espionage Act uh, for top secret documents is serious stuff. Uh, and that is within the range of what you would expect for an espionage recommended sentence. So uh, don't retain top secret documents, Josh, if you don't want to go to federal prison for more than 10 years. Suppose Donald Trump is actually convicted in this federal case. And before we even talk about that, it's Judge Eileen Cannon. Right. Um, is it really likely that, it, that he would ultimately receive a sentence of 11 to 14 years in prison for having retained these documents? I would say no. He has no criminal history. Uh, he's a older gentleman with uh, some health and possibly mental problems. And, you know, it, it's, it's relatively rare in white collar cases for judges to sentence someone to die in prison, basically. If you're Bernie Madoff, it's going to happen. Uh, for this, uh, I would think it would be very difficult for a judge to get their head around not sentencing him to federal prison. But I would anticipate uh, probably it not being, you know, for 15 years. Probably a lot less than that, right? Yeah. I, if I were guessing at it, I'd say like five. So, I, I mean, I realize that this is, this is a highly unusual prosecution, but it's, it's interesting. We've gone, we've gone through all this work with the tables and, you know, made people do something like they're doing their taxes and all these complicated calculations. We came to an answer and then we immediately threw the answer out. We were like... They're not, they're not going to follow that guideline. They're going to do something completely different than what the guidelines say. Sure. I assume the guidelines are usually more useful than this in figuring out a sentence? Well, they are. But first of all, the message of this is that you have to seriously worry about going to federal prison for a significant amount of time. So sure. for someone who's never been convicted of a crime, that's a very big deal. So, like, remember Michael Cohen, uh, our friend Donald Trump's fixer, uh, who did go to federal prison, uh, one of the few that I predicted uh, correctly that it was going to be a three-year sentence. And, but that's life-changing for someone who has never been convicted of a, sure. a crime before. And so same with the other Trump people who are first-time offenders. They got federal prison time. Uh, this type of thing kind of still gives you a rough idea of who's going to be able to skate with probation and who's not. It remains more predictive for drug crimes and uh, violent crimes and things like that because, you know, the system is always harsher on blue-collar crime than white-collar crime. But it's it still, you know, this tells you that I would be telling them not to count on probation even if you were the president of the United States. Okay. But the judge, to be clear, would have the option to do that. You could get to a, a, a conviction and then you could have a judge who would, would have to offer a justification, an explanation why they didn't follow the guidelines, or could a judge just hand down a sentence and say, I'm giving Trump probation? They could. I think that would be the rare case vulnerable to being overturned on appeal. Uh, huh. That would be so extreme, it would be seen as an abuse of discretion. You do see cases where the circuit 
overturns probationary sentences and other extraordinary light sentences. You're more likely to see it in cases where uh, the circuit is mad or really hates the type of crime. So there's been a run of child porn cases where uh, district judges thinks that the sentence is outrageously long and inhumane and the circuit says, no, these are child porn people, you know, fuck them, go to jail forever. You know, mm-hmm. uh, life plus cancer. Uh, so uh, I, I think that uh, this is a case where extraordinary things can happen. And those extraordinary things include both someone like Judge Eileen Cannon completely blowing off the guidelines and, and going for broke and doing probation. Or the circuit then slapping her down and saying, no, this is, uh, this is an abuse of your very broad discretion. Interesting. One more thing about it, if I can, Josh, and that is what does that number mean? If you get it. So yes. you get the number. Um, if you're sentenced to five years in prison, it doesn't mean you actually spend five years in prison. No. And what it means can vary wildly from state to state and with the federal government. So there's no parole anymore in the federal system. And so the, the baseline is that you're going to do 85% of it if you behave yourself in prison. Uh, There have been new laws like the First Step Act, which uh, former President Trump signed, fortunately for him, uh, (laughs) that that provide more ways to reduce a sentence the time you actually serve, particularly for a first-time offender. So he might be able to uh, drive his actually time served down to as low as maybe half of a sentence. Uh, Same for a lot of white-collar criminals. It's, it's, again, less likely to be available for someone who does a a violent crime. Uh, States, it's a crapshoot depending on the state. You can have anywhere from most of it to a third of it. And all the states have gone through periods where um, you could commit terrible crimes and get out remarkably quickly. And so given how, how complicated all of this was, and also given how, you know, the, the, the one key example that we went through at, at length, we ended up deciding that the guidelines were not actually that meaningful. We, we have a question from a listener named Zach. He says, as a longtime listener of your podcast and its predecessors, this point has been drilled into my brain uh, re- regarding the, that, you know, you can't just add up the statutory maximum sentences. He says, what's frustratingly unclear is how anyone without a law degree and several hours to kill can, can come up with an alternative number or ballpark range. If a journalist told you, I know that adding up all the statutory maxima is wrong, but my editor says I have to put some kind of number or range in this article, what would Ken advise them to do instead? So Ken, should they ask ChatGPT? <laughs> Uh, well, that would be entertaining for us, certainly. Um, I, I, I know that I'm going to sound like, you know, Lynn Wood saying that the solution to our problems are good pillows. But uh, I, I just think the solution to this problem is developing uh, sources who know this stuff that you trust, uh, who are willing to, at least to give you some sort of vague ballpark. When I'm asked by journalists, I tend to say, this is a, an outcome where it's very plausible he could get probation. This is an outcome where the guidelines are quite high and it's going to be real hard not to do serious prison time, things like that. I'm less likely to give those ranges because you can see how complicated uh, those calculations are. Yeah. Okay, well, I think that's. I think we can leave it there for this week. And I, I, I think this was interesting and I hope that this is going to be helpful to people as they, as they consume legal news on this podcast and elsewhere. Um, if listeners have further questions for us and we will be revisiting many of these topics in, in the coming weeks and months, Ken, uh, where should they write in with their questions? They can write to ricohotline at seriousTrouble.show. That's right, ricohotline at seriousTrouble.show. You can, of course, also join the comments section uh, on the webpage for this episode uh, at seriousTrouble.show. Uh, we, uh, we love to hear your responses and your questions, uh, and that often forms fodder for future shows that we do. So uh, thank, you for, uh, thank you for participating. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more soon. See you next time. <laughs>